Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wish Aroma the Educated Skunk were here because if it were up to me, and the Picking the Skunk of the Week is a joint enterprise on this show, if it were up to me, Aroma would be here because Dune, one of five science fiction films being released this holiday season, is the worst, according to me, by a wide margin. It's physically ugly. It contains at least a dozen gory gross-out scenes. Some of its special effects are cheap, surprisingly cheap, because this film costs a reported 40 to $45 million, and its story is confusing beyond belief. Basically, I watched two things while watching Dune. I watched the movie, yes, and I watched my watch. This film was pure torture to sit through. Uh, I didn't now, like why it. Is, now, why, isn't it, why did you say, no, it doesn't no, qualify for... I said you couldn't bring it wrong with the educated skunk. Why around. not? I don't think it's a skunk. I think it's a bad movie. I don't recommend it. But I do think it qualifies as one of the great follies of motion picture history. Rome, 1984. David Cronenberg was on his latest trip to Dino Cita, the massive studio where famed Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis had shot films like the Agony and the Ecstasy, in Waterloo just a decade earlier. For a year now, David had been flying between Toronto, Rome, and Los Angeles as he developed his script for the upcoming adaptation of the Philip K. Dick short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, now titled Total Recall. But it proved to be a tough nut to crack. Complicating matters was the failure of David Lynch's very expensive adaptation of the Frank Herbert novel, Dune. That film's failure had a ripple effect through the De Laurentiis company, and they were no longer bullish on supporting a big-budget sci-fi picture. Philip K. Dick's original short story had a terrific premise. At the center of the story is Douglas Quayle, an everyman working a menial office job. His dream in life is to visit Mars. Then Quayle discovers Recall Incorporated, a company that can implant the memory of having been to Mars in Quayle's head. However, the procedure goes awry when it seemingly unearths hidden memories of Quayle's past life as a secret agent on the Red Planet. But that's pretty much where Dick's short story ends. It was decided in the development process that the action should move to Mars for the film's second and third acts. Cronenberg introduced the presence of mutants on Mars, including Gansibles, a kind of mutant camel living in the sewers and used as beasts of burden. In his script, he also introduced Quato, the leader of the Martian Resistance, who is also a parasitic twin. David wanted William Hurt for his film's lead. Just a few years earlier, Hurt had burst onto the scene in Ken Russell's body horror thriller, Altered States, which he quickly followed up with the one-two punch of body heat in The Big Chill for Lawrence Kasdan. But De Laurentiis didn't want Hurt. Richard Dreyfuss was sniffing around the project. An Oscar winner for The Goodbye Girl, Dreyfus had starred in two of the highest-grossing films in history with Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But by 1984, the bloom had fallen off the rose. Dreyfus had developed a cocaine addiction, and in 1982 wrapped his Mercedes-Benz around a tree. Fresh out of rehab, he hadn't been in a film since 1981. So De Laurentiis saw a star available at a discount, and they began developing the project around the actor. After a year of writing, 
David presented his 12th draft of the script to De Laurentiis and producer Ronald Schusset. I don't know, Dino said, tossing Cronenberg's new script on his massive mahogany desk. I like some things, but some things I don't. I think maybe we go back to a number nine script. This was not the reaction David was hoping for. <sighs> Dino, I don't know. It's really hard to go back to the golden calf after you've seen God. De Laurentiis looked at Shusit quizzically. What does this mean? It means how can you expect me to shoot draft 9 when I know draft 12 exists? It's an impossibility. That's when Ronald Shusit offered to put his finger on the problem with David's script. He told the director that it's a fine script, but it reads like Philip K. Dick's version of the story. I thought that's what we were adapting here. Ronald then told them they weren't making another Blade Runner, a dark Philip K. Dick adaptation that recently underperformed at the box office. What they wanted to make was a kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark go to Mars. It should be classy, action-packed, and have lots of laughs throughout. And that's when it all made sense to David. Why they had gotten to 12 drafts without landing on a shootable script. And he knew now just how to fix the problem. It's obvious. We're talking about two different films. And you don't want to make my film, and I don't want to make yours. The two producers sat across from him and paused still waiting for David's solution to the problem. So, we should just stop. And with that, Total Recall was dead. And for the first time since starting his career, David Cronenberg found himself unemployed, with no prospects for work on the horizon. Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we dive into the history behind your favorite CanCon. This is the sixth and final episode in our series on filmmaker David Cronenberg. In our last episode, David uncovered the secrets of Videodrome and had a brush with the Dead Zone, which resulted in the biggest hit of his career up to that point. This is episode six, Twins. In the period following the release of The Dead Zone, David Cronenberg had several projects floated his way. Among them was an offer to direct Beverly Hills Cop, then meant to star Sylvester Stallone. Next, he was to helm Witness, which already had Harrison Ford attached to star, but David said he couldn't direct a picture about the Amish. You're making a mistake. So the project went to Australian director Peter Weir, eventually earning eight Academy Award nominations, including ones for Ford and Weir. That film was also the big screen debut of Viggo Mortensen, who, 20 years later, would become Cronenberg's key on-screen collaborator, his Bobby De Niro. Side note, Witness is also the first VHS we owned when I was a kid, so it was on regular rotation in the Barnett house. But more on that in the Witness podcast. It was 1985, and David was out of work. There was one project, however, that had been buzzing around him while he was working on Total Recall. It was another adaptation of a literary work, one that had been adapted before, in fact, in 1984, he had had to say no, but the project circled back around again, landing on his plate just when he needed it most. The Fly had started as a short story by George Langelham and was published in the pages of Playboy magazine in 1957. 
A year later, it was famously adapted into a film starring Vincent Price. That film spawned two sequels. This is the son of the original fly, daring to explore the forbidden science of transmigration that brought horrible death to his father. It was in the early 1980s that writer Charles Edward Polk, just off of adapting two Sherlock Holmes stories for TV, and producer Stuart Kornfeld began developing a new feature film based on the original short story. Kornfeld was the producer responsible for marrying Man and Material with David Lynch in The Elephant Man. That movie was made by Brooks Films, the production shingle of famed comedian and filmmaker Mel Brooks. Occupation, stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. When trying to mount the fly, Kornfeld once again partnered with Brooks to produce the project. It was then set to be directed by British filmmaker Robert Bierman. But following a family tragedy, Brooks and Kornfeld found themselves without a director. And that's when The Fly made its way back to Cronenberg via his agent Mike Marcus. David had seen the original film adaptation and read Pogue's script and thought both were pretty bad. But in adapting the original short story, Pogue had made an interesting change. In the story, the main protagonist, the scientist conducting experiments in teleportation, is felled by his own invention when testing the technology on himself, and a common housefly gets into the machine. And when he comes out, he has swapped heads and right arms with the fly. In Pogue's script, however, the scientist absorbs the fly, commingling their DNA. And rather than making it a head swap story, it becomes the story of metamorphosis as the scientist grows more insect-like. This intrigued David. So, he met with Mel Brooks and Stuart Kornfeld. If I'm going to sign on to this film, he said to them, I want us to start on the same page as it relates to just what kind of film I intend to make. After 12 false starts on Total Recall, David was not keen on adapting another short story if his producers wanted something different. He then laid it all out for them. He wanted to cut the first 19 pages from Pogue's script and switch the story from that of a married man to one of a new couple. Two people have just met and are falling in love when the accident occurs. It was a tragic romance at its center, and the metamorphosis into the fly was a metaphor for aging. I see it as talking about mortality, vulnerability, and the tragedy of human loss. Every love story must end tragically. One of the two lovers dies, or both of them die together. It's the end. Brooks and Kornfeld nodded in agreement. There's just one thing, Brooks interjected. I want you to go all the way. Don't hold back when it comes to gore. Brooks Films offered David twice as much as he had earned for The Dead Zone to write and direct The Fly. Finally, he had a project in development, and things were as they should be again. We will return to Faye Dunaway in Mommy Dearest. In casting The Fly, some names were batted around. Mel Brooks wanted Pierce Brosnan, who was then starring on the primetime series Remington Steel. But to David, the Irish actor was too good-looking. He didn't fit Cronenberg's conception of the character Seth Brundle, the scientist who becomes The Fly. Richard Dreyfuss was in the mix because of his relationship with the director and connection to Total Recall. 
but Dreyfus wasn't keen on acting under the prosthetic makeup required for the metamorphosis of the character. Chris Wallace, the makeup effects supervisor, asked David just one thing to keep in mind while casting. That was one of the sort of stipulations I, I asked uh, David uh, for was to just make sure that if we go ahead with this, that casting your lead is the number one priority because he's where 90% of our difficulties are going to lie. And so we said, okay, get somebody with no ears and, and no bridge of the nose because that way we, can, we have a lot more control with the makeup. So David did have an actor in mind. He had met Jeff Goldblum back at the 1983 Toronto Film Festival. Goldblum was there promoting his new film, The Big Chill, from Serge Grunberg's interview with Cronenberg. I remember somebody was attacking him because they said that The Big Chill was just a remake of a John Sayles' film, uh, Secaucus 7. I was defending the film because I liked it, so Jeff thanked me for doing that. Uh, David, David's just, he's wonderful. He's just wonderful. And he, he actually called to say, look, Chris, uh, I'm thinking of Jeff Goldblum. I, and I know he's just exactly what you don't want for, for makeup purposes. And both Stefan and I said, yeah, he's not what we want for makeup purposes. But we were, we were big fans of Jeff, so we just said, we'll make it work, whatever. With Jeff Goldblum in place, the search began for the film's co-lead, science reporter Veronica Quaif. In looking for Seth Brundle's love interest, David didn't have to search very far. He only had to look at his lead's real-life love interest. Gina Davis had made her screen debut in the film Tootsie just a few years earlier. Since then, she had bounced around doing bit parts in television, including, funnily enough, an episode of Remington Steel and an episode of Knight Rider opposite David Hasselhoff. There's something you should understand about me and my father. I didn't know him as a notorious cat burglar. To me, he was a wonderful man who did magic tricks, told stories. He even came down the chimney at Christmas like Santa. Well, someone's using your father's M.O. to pull off some highly professional burglaries. Goldblum and Davis had begun dating shortly before, having met on the set of another film. From an appearance on The Tonight Show, guest hosted by Gary Shandling. Um, we met making the film Transylvania 65,000. In Zagreb, you got right? In which I was like a vampire. He was a reporter. And, um... Right away, as soon as I saw her, I was like... Uh, I was like uh, uh, mad because I knew I was I knew I was uh, I, I liked her very much and, and uh... see now Jeff you look in love really? yeah although you're looking at me so it's confusing <laughs> but producer Stuart Kornfeld didn't want the future Oscar winning actress as the love interest in the picture he wanted David to look at other actresses for the role again from Serge Grunberg's book Stuart had a whole idea of what it is to be a producer in his head. His idea was, whatever the director wants, you don't give him right away because he must be wrong. But after some unsuccessful auditions with other actresses, Davis was eventually signed, and the film was ready to go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hold on. Hang on. Just needs video. And one, two, three. Toronto, 1985. The filming for The Fly was technically grueling for all involved. From a behind-the-scenes EPK for the film. I've done films that are primarily action, like Scanners. And I've done films that are primarily character, like The Dead Zone. And I've done films that are very, uh, very much, go very quite deeply into special effects that have never been done before, like Videodrome. And I think in The Fly, all of these things are combined. This marked by far the most ambitious project of the young director's career. It was budgeted somewhere between $9 and $15 million. Figures vary on the source. And it was being made for 20th Century Fox. David and crew had to troubleshoot problems like, how do you convincingly have a character climb the walls and ceiling of his home? There really is only one respectable way to do that, and that is to build a set that actually revolves. This meant building a set inside of an enormous rotating gimbal. As he's walking, the, f- the ceiling becomes the floor, and the camera ultimately ends up upside down with the cameraman, and we have our actor on the what looks like the ceiling, but in fact is the floor. And so at this point, the fly is very um, messy, and he likes to eat things that are sugary and sweet, and so we have donuts and decaying uh, you know, um, rolls and all kinds of stuff all over the place, and all of these have to be nailed and bolted and glued down so that when the set turns upside down, everything just doesn't fall and and reveal what's going on. So it's actually very, very tricky. This was an effect famously put to use in Stanley Donan's film Royal Wedding, which features a sequence in which Fred Astaire dances on the ceiling of his apartment. But at its core, The Fly is a transformation film, and to achieve that convincingly would be its biggest technical hurdle. The detailing of what happens to the relationships and to this man physically and emotionally are, will, I could tell you about it for days, and you still, I think, would, would, would not be prepared for what happens to him in the film. Gina Davis. Establishing how much we love each other before the accident became very important to us because if you didn't believe that we really loved each other more than any couple ever has before this accident happens, why would I really stick around when I go, this is really strange and and I hope it all works out for you. The picture climaxes in the complete metamorphosis of scientist Seth Brundle into Brundle Fly. This is makeup artist Chris Wallace. We're taking a, a main character and bringing him from his a very, very human uh, form all the way through subtle skin color changes to sores and um, creating finally him in his uh, uh, stage that's just horribly degenerated and then pass that to another stage which is an entirely new being. This new being was rendered through a rotating cast of single-purpose animatronic puppets engineered to perform specific effects. Gina Davis spent two solid weeks on set painstakingly filming this final sequence, tearing off Brundle's mandible, watching his face split apart to reveal the fly head underneath, and finally killing the creature, the love of her life, with a compassionate shotgun blast to the temple. Coming up next, the end result of a botched experiment is neither man nor beast. I'm not even sure it's a movie. It's the fly. 
It's the goofy story of a scientist who accidentally switched heads with a pesky housefly. You know the rest, but what you don't know is the schlocky gimmicks Canada's freaky B-movie director David Cronenberg has dreamed up to bring the story up to date. This time, the mad... Film critic Rex Reed may not have cared for David Cronenberg's remake of the 50s horror classic, but he was pretty much alone on his island of malcontent. Gene Siskel, critic for the Chicago Tribune, put it on his list of the 10 best films of 1986. The movie is beautifully made without passing into what I call the gross-out category, and so what we get from The Fly is both a great adventure and a fine love story. Well, The Fly was not on my list of the 10 best films of the year, but it was certainly in the top 20, and Goldblum, I think, deserves an Academy Award nomination. Mm -hmm. Jeff Goldblum did indeed do a run for Best Actor, doing the talk show rounds in January of 1987. Let's talk about... Uh... Uh, the fly and the success that it's had, and they're showing it again. Yeah. And uh, I wish you the best. I mean, you may be the first actor in a long time, they say, to get a nomination for... Uh, now, is it a horror movie? Would you, you know, Well, yes. <laughs> it is a horror movie in many ways, and much more than that. I'm, in fact, very proud of it. Uh, at the time, only a handful of actors had received Oscar nominations for performances in horror movies, a list that included Sissy Spacek for Carrie and Janet Leigh for Psycho. Fifty years earlier, Frederick March had actually won Best Actor for his dual turn as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a performance not entirely divorced from Jeff Goldblum's Brundlefly. Perhaps my looks don't please you. Well, you ain't no beauty. Quite right. I am no beauty. Perhaps you prefer a gentleman, eh? Unfortunately, it wasn't to be. Despite nominations by the National Society of Film Critics in the New York Critics Circle, Goldblum would go unrecognized by the Academy. That year, he was squeezed out by past and future Cronenberg collaborators James Woods and William Hurt, with the award going to Paul Newman for The Color of Money. But that didn't mean Oscar turned his back on the film entirely. Comedian Roddy Dangerfield took to the stage to award Best Achievement in Makeup. But I'm here tonight to present the award for makeup. And makeup is important. I mean, in movies, everybody wants to look good, you know? And who always wins the award? The guy who creates the ugliest creature there is. Ah, people all want to look good. It makes them feel better. While my wife went out, she had her face lifted. My luck, there was one just like it underneath. I will get to the award now for the Best Achievement in Makeup. The nominees are The Clan of the Cave Bear, Michael G. Westmore, and Michelle Burke. The Fly, Chris Wallace, and Stephen Dupuis. Yes, Legend, Rob Bottom and Peter Rob King. And the winner for the best achievement makeup is Chris Wallace and Stephen Dupuis for The Fly. The Fly marked the reunion of Chris Wallace and Stéphane Dupuis, the team that worked on Cronenberg's Scanners. Wallace had gone on from there to work on the melting faces for Raiders of the Lost Ark and designed the titular Gremlins for Joe Dante's 1984 horror comedy. But this was his first Academy Award nomination and win. I'd like to thank uh, my director, David Cronenberg, my producer, Mr. Producer Head, Stuart Kornfeld, uh, the best makeup crew I've ever worked with, Stefan, and 
the person that, for me, made the makeup really work, Jeff Goldblum. Thank you very much. Stefan? I, um, I would like to thank the uh, makeup crew on location, Margaret Becerra, uh, Donald Mowat, the entire CWI crew, and again, Mr. Jeff Goldblum for doing such an incredible performance, being buried under five pounds of grotesque makeup. Thank you, Jeffrey, for your patience. Thanks, Jeff. Hardware aside, The Fly was an unequivocal hit for Cronenberg. It opened in the number one spot at the box office, holding its ground for two weeks while up against heavy hitters like Top Gun, Stand By Me, and James Cameron's Aliens. The film remained in the top ten for eight weeks, finishing its run with a $38 million take nearly doubling the gross of the dead zone. In podcast talk, this was the director's guarantor, the film that ensured David Cronenberg would be making movies for decades to come. But in 1987, it meant that David could pretty much make any film he wanted to next. And what he wanted to make was his long gestating twins project. Twins had started as a conversation in Carol Bohm's office back in 1981. Carol and David shared their mutual fascination in the story of the Marcus brothers, twin gynecologists who turned up dead in a trash-filled apartment. First heard about the Marcus twins through a blurb in the paper. Twin docs found in posh pad. I thought they were making it up. It was too perfect. Better than two-toed man falls to death in bathtub. Carol introduced David to producer Joe Roth, and the two set the film up with a Lebanese financier, Silvio Tabet. But that version of the film fell through when they couldn't agree on a shooting script. After the success of The Fly, David and producer Mark Boyman once again began shopping the project. Do these guys have to be gynecologists? Can't they be lawyers? A number of times I heard that. The project bounced around, eventually landing with David's old producer, Dino De Laurentiis. Dino's daughter, Rafaela, was the one in charge of the project, and it was a green light. They built sets and cast the main roles of Elliot and Beverly Mantle, Cronenberg's fictionalized twin doctors, with English actor Jeremy Irons. Irons had just starred in Roland Joffe's Palme d'Or winning The Mission, opposite Robert De Niro. However, the floor soon fell out once again. I visited Raffaella, and she had her hair up and back, so <laughs> I knew I was in trouble. The young De Laurentiis informed David that the company was in trouble. They were still hurting from the Dune debacle, as well as other recent big-ticket bombs like Million Dollar Mystery, a $10 million comedy that managed to gross just $989,000 at the box office. Despite already having spent $300,000 on the sets for Twins, De Laurentiis was pulling the plug. Cronenberg's blank check project found itself once again without funding. That's when producer Joe Roth stepped back in with his newly founded Morgan Creek Productions and pulled together the $13 million budget required to start filming. Like The Fly, the film proved to be a technical hurdle unlike anything David had made before. It required computerized motion control cameras to allow Jeremy Irons to play opposite himself as Beverly and Elliot Mantle. Every twin shot must be filmed twice, with Irons playing first one role and then the other. 
Optical Effects Supervisor Lee Wilson. This was a motion control shot. We're seeing both halves of the frame. In this shot, we had the two of them walking side by side as the motion control rig was dollying back. You'll see in a moment Elliot entering this side of frame. And then we use the video to put a hard split in to show Beverly entering on the left-hand side. And we can see how the two of them play together throughout the scene. As David progressed through production on his latest film, a problem arose regarding its title. David's old friend and producer of his first films, Shivers and Rabid, Ivan Reitman, wanted the title for himself. He was in production on a new film project starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. My name is Julius, and I'm your twin brother. Oh, obviously. The moment I sat down, I thought I was looking into a mirror. In the end, Reitman bought the title Twins for his own picture, leaving David to retitle his film to Dead Ringers. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Beverly Mantle. By every scientific measure, they are absolutely the same. They share everything. You haven't had any experience until I've had it too. Bev, you've got to try the movie star. She's unbelievable. Oh, doctor, you've cured me. You mean to say there's two of them? They're twins, dear. I think we should drop her, Bev. You drop her. I'm in love with her. I'll be in love if it does this to you, Kenneth. Doctor, I think there's something wrong with you. Patients are getting strange. What are they? For working on mutant women. From David Cronenberg, who in The Fly made the fantastic real. Get him out of here! Radical technology was required. Something radical is definitely required. Now, David Cronenberg makes reality the ultimate fantasy. Dead Ringers. Separation can be a, a terrifying thing. On location. Toronto, 1988. Dead Ringers was set to debut as part of the Festival of Festivals, later to be rebranded as the Toronto International Film Festival. Hi, we're here at Toronto's Festival of Festivals. Now, if you've never been to a movie premiere, it's really quite exciting. The crowds are all gathered here, waiting to catch a glimpse of the stars, and rumors are flying as to what celebrities just may turn out. Unlike David Cronenberg's last flick, The Fly, Dead Ringers is not a horror movie. It's an eerie psychological thriller and something quite different for David Cronenberg. CFTO reporter Linda Feig was right. Dead Ringers marked a watershed moment for the director. He graduated, as some may see it, from genre filmmaking to produce his first adult drama. And it was a move that stuck for years to come, as he would later make films like M. Butterfly, Crash, A History of Violence, and Eastern Promises. At the time, Dead Ringers was a box office flop, but it went on to win 11 Genie Awards, the Canadian equivalent to the Oscars, which included Best Picture and Best Director for Cronenberg. Here's Linda Feig talking to David about Dead Ringers. It's very, very Canadian. Is yeah. that what you wanted it to be? Well, I'm very Canadian. So it's very natural for me to shoot here, to use the crew that I've used, to use Canadian actors that I've worked with before, and to sort of discover some new ones as well. Uh, that is just absolutely natural for me. 
I have no desire. I mean, I've never shot a movie outside of Canada, and I've made 11 of them. So um, it, it's... Like Jeff it's Goldblum before him, Jeremy Irons was heavily talked about for an Academy Award nomination for playing the Mantle Twins. But it was a nomination that never materialized. However, when Jeremy Irons won the Academy Award just two years later for his performance in Reversal of Fortune, he ended his speech with this. Thank you also, and some of you may understand why. Thank you, David Cronenberg. Thank you all. As the years have gone on, Dead Ringers has only grown in reputation. It was the 21st title added to the esteemed Criterion Collection, and was recently named among the greatest films directed by a Canadian, placing number 7 on this list compiled by the CBC. It was also, in 2023, adapted into a six-episode prestige TV series for Amazon Prime, starring Rachel Weisz as the Mantle Twins. It's impossible to explain this relationship to anyone outside of it. We just cut a baby out of a woman's womb. She asked us to. We didn't just, like, do it. She's the funny one. My sister and I do work that is groundbreaking, but hopeful, radical, but safe. Sometimes I feel I've got to... I want to change the way that women birth. Is world changing. How does that vomit inducing idealism translate into dollars? I do my job to help people. Baby sister, you are so deliciously perfect. Where do you come from? Is capitalism very bad? Toronto 2021. David Cronenberg stood in the attic of his home. He was dressed in a grey terry cloth bathrobe. His hair was a must silver wave atop his head. He hovered at the foot of a bed. In that bed laid his own lifeless body, a perfect double. Its eyes closed, its mouth agape, frozen after taking its final breath. Its skin nearly translucent revealing a network of purple veins just underneath its surface. David stepped around the foot of the bed to get a closer look at his lifeless self. He then climbed into the bed, next to his corpse. And in a scene reminiscent of the final scene in Dead Ringers, he kissed his deceased double, then laid next to it in a tight embrace. The death of David Cronenberg debuted online in September of 2021. It is a one-minute short film directed by David's youngest daughter, photographer Caitlin Cronenberg. It came to be when David gained access to a full-scale prosthetic corpse of himself. It had been a prop created by Black Spot Effects in Toronto for the Netflix series Slasher. The film was Caitlin's concept, but like Videodrome and Dead Ringers after it, it stands as a kind of apotheosis of a Cronenberg film, an examination of mortality, a preoccupation with doubles a disquieting unease underscored by a dry humor. In addition, this film was tokenized and auctioned as an NFT, selling for a reported $90,000. This too fits with the other side of Cronenberg, the savvy businessman, the guy who duped the Arts Council into funding a novel that he never intended to write so that he could take the money and establish a line of credit to rent film equipment, or the guy who cast adult film actress Marilyn Chambers in his second movie, understanding that that would help sell the film in foreign markets. In this series, we've covered his first two decades as a filmmaker, during which he made 11 films. 
but he's made 11 more since, and he continues to work in Canada. His latest project, The Shrouds, just wrapped production in Toronto this past summer. So despite being present and witness to his own death on screen, David Cronenberg is showing no signs of slowing down. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It is co-produced by Sonia Jamidi with additional voices by Matt Barnett. This is episode six, our final episode in our series on David Cronenberg. I'll be back with a new series soon, this time focused on the life and work of everyone's favorite person, John Candy. Hey, how you doing? Who are you? I'm your Uncle Buck. Do I have an uncle? But before that, The Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North feed will host a special limited series about the lives and legacy of the professional Native Indian Artists Incorporated, better known as the, quote, Indian Group of Seven and its members. That series, which we're calling Among Equals, premieres in November. I hope you'll be back for that. If you like us, follow us, rate us, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. In researching this show, I relied heavily on two books, Cronenberg on Cronenberg, edited by Chris Rodley, and David Cronenberg, Interviews with Serge Grunberg, as well as print and online interviews and DVD special features. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. You can find more Canadian media ephemera on their YouTube channel and Instagram. If you want anything more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Top Gun, yeah, was a possibility many years ago, and uh, I really felt I didn't, I, I, I didn't, I couldn't connect with that movie. I couldn't. That movie is quintessentially American, and I am not an American, and there is a, a real difference. I mean, I'm Canadian. We're connected. We're cousins. We understand each other up to a certain point, but beyond that, there, we're we're really quite different cultures. I knock about the media original. Hold on.